Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, who is over in London, Also, down the line, we are joined by Oliver Ralph, our insurance correspondent, Stephen Morris from Zurich, who's our European banking correspondent, and from Frankfurt, Olaf Storbeck, our German financial correspondent, and our guest, Professor Isabel Schnabel from the University of Bonn. This week, we will be discussing Warren Buffett as he talks to the FT about many things, including his attraction for investing in banks, A look at JP Morgan as it becomes the latest bank to outlaw business with Brunei. And finally, Deutsche Bank, Commerzbank, the talks collapse. So first, let's look at Warren Buffett and what he's had to say about the banking industry. We're joined by Oliver Ralph, one of the journalists who went to interview Mr. Buffett in Omaha. Oliver, thanks very much for joining us from your sickbed. It's a rare thing for Warren Buffett to do an on-the-record interview and even rarer for him to spend as much time as he did with you, I think. And among many of the things that he talked about, as evidenced in the Weekend magazine interview published this past weekend, he talked quite a lot about banking, didn't he, and his interest in banks. Yeah, he did. He's got a lot of banks in his portfolio. Obviously, he's got a very big portfolio, but he owns about $100 billion worth of banks. And within that, he's got some of the big names. Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, so some of the big names. We asked him about why he likes banks. He said he preferred US banks to overseas banks. He feels that overseas banks are more leveraged. He also said he doesn't like the way that a lot of overseas banks own a lot of sovereign bonds. He thinks the risk is underpriced in a lot of overseas sovereign bonds and he doesn't like that. So that's why he's kept his portfolio to mainly US banks. One of the notable things about his portfolio is that he's kept his ownership in most of them to below 10%. That's because if you go over 10% in the US, you get more oversight from regulators. That said, there may be an opportunity, there are proposals now to allow that ceiling to increase. So he may be able to increase his stakes in some of his US banks over the next year or so, potentially, if these regulations come through. He had something specific to say about Wells Fargo, which has obviously been more in the news than most over scandals and also the change of the CEO that's ongoing. Yes, he did. He's clearly a big fan of Wells Fargo. When you go and sit in his office, in the corner of his office is an enormous replica of the famous Wells Fargo stagecoach. Wells Fargo is clearly always in his mind. And what he said was that the new chief executive at Wells Fargo shouldn't be someone from Wall Street. He said it shouldn't be someone from J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs. He said that would draw the ire of politicians and that it would just cause a lot more aggravation. And then sort of a very Warren Buffett comment here. He said, you don't want a business that needs a genius to run it. You want a business that an ordinary business could run. That's a very typical Warren Buffett-esque comment there. But I think that's his thinking in terms of uh, the new chief executive at Wells Fargo. He doesn't want some Wall Street whiz kid coming to run it. I think in his mind, it needs someone a lot more straightforward to run it. 
Well, let me bring in Laura for a final comment on this, because the other things we've heard are that the board would quite like to appoint a woman to this job. If it's not going to be Wall Street, if it's not going to be a man, that narrows the field quite a lot. Does that mean Ruth Porrett, who's now Google CFO, had been CFO at Morgan Stanley years ago, Does that put her in pole position, do you think? I guess it depends on how you interpret the comment about it not being a Wall Street person. I mean, you could argue she is essentially a Wall Street person who's just been out of Wall Street for a while. In terms of the kudos at being the first to appoint a woman, I think a lot of banks would like that. But I think ultimately this decision isn't going to be guided by that. I think it's going to be guided by finding the person who has the right characteristics both to take the business forward and also to do it in a way that doesn't antagonise the lawmakers too much. So... There's a middle ground to be found somewhere because you can't just take someone who doesn't know anything about banking. That hasn't worked terribly well in the past. And while Wells Fargo is overwhelmingly a retail bank, it is a very big and very complex bank. So I think you do need someone who has at least some experience in the financial services industry. You probably want someone who's come more from the retail side, who's experienced in dealing with the really nuts and bolts issues which Wells Fargo is facing At this stage, I would be willing to bet that the person who ultimately runs that bank is going to be someone who is currently either chief executive of a bank in the US or is in a senior role in a bank in the US. It may not be an ex-JP Morgan person or a JP person. It may not be a Goldman Sachs person, but I think it's very unlikely to be someone who's new to the banking industry because if you didn't have banking experience, it would really make it difficult to actually do that job. Well said. I think we've all had or could cite examples of where that kind of thing has gone wrong pre-crisis with non-bankers running banks into the ground. Thank you, Laura, for your comments on that. And thank you, Oliver, for joining us. So let's move on to our second topic and a look at the latest bank to outlaw doing business with business interests connected to Brunei. Stephen Morris is joining us from Zurich. Stephen, thanks for dialing in. So JP Morgan has cut ties with the Brunei administration, specifically banning its staff from staying in hotels owned by the country. Is that right? Yes, that's right. JP Morgan bankers will no longer be able to stay in swanky hotels like the Dorchester in London and various hotels across the world in LA, in Beverly Hills, because of this latest law that's been brought in in Brunei, the highlight or low light of which is that if you are caught in a gay relationship, you will be stoned to death. So it follows other banks, JP Morgan, such as Deutsche, and the FT has cancelled a conference the Dorchester in London as well. But it did this very quietly. It just changed the policy on the 12th of April on its internal booking system, but didn't make a fanfare about it, sent no memos out, didn't alert the media. So one of the sources that we spoke to described it as doing the right thing, but very quietly. So it's good in a way, but they obviously didn't really want to be seen to be taking that strong a stance against decisions made by sovereign states. Now, part of the reason for this might be that Saudi Arabia has been in the headlines for the killing of a journalist pretty recently, but J.P. Morgan's top staff are still attending conferences, hobnobbing with the leaders of that country, and indeed are one of the main banks organizing one of their huge bond deals at the moment. So while J.P. Morgan has done the right thing in Brunei's case, there are still questions about some of the other governments and countries that it operates with around the world. Yeah, you mentioned Saudi. It's very interesting how quickly the Saudi regime has been brought back in from the cold when there's business to be done. Only months ago, they were pariahs for having been associated with the murder of Mr. Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist that you mentioned. That didn't really last very long. No, and it's not fair to single out JP Morgan. Literally every major global bank is trying to work with them again now. 
They're obviously having a huge part privatization or part listing of their state oil company, which has involved M&A and huge bond issuance and presumably an incredible amount of investment fees down the line. So you have the likes of JP Morgan, HSBC, Barclays, Goldman Sachs, all scrambling over each other to try and cozy up to the state again after some rather tepid protests alongside the killing last year. It appears that all of that has been forgotten now. There is a bit of a fee bonanza on offer. Well, uh, thanks on that depressing note for joining us, Stephen. All the best. Let's move on to our final topic and a look at Deutsche and Commerzbank and how these two banks, which were until very recently going to merge, are now going their separate ways. The talks to merge have collapsed. Olaf, you've been watching this story very closely for some time. What exactly happened? What went wrong? The main reason for the collapse of the talk was that Deutsche Bank and to some degree Commerzbank came to the conclusion that the expected returns of a deal weren't really matching the capital needs they had to basically fund the execution costs. So people familiar with the numbers tell me that the banks came to the conclusion they had to raise between 6 and 8 billion euros of additional capital, while even after spotless execution of the integration, they could only plausibly expect a rate of return on equity relatively significantly below 10%, which is basically the threshold to earn the cost of capital, to basically match the costs of running your business. And that was kind of the point where initially Christian Seving, Deutsche CEO, and also the other side basically concluded that the risks, especially if you factor in potential problems to execution, the potential risks of an economic downturn, just were not in a fair balance to what could be gained from such a merger. And many of Deutsche Bank's large shareholders were skeptical right from the start about the merits of a deal. It had been a tough sell to shareholders and to supervisory board members from the capital side. And with unions and worker representatives on the supervisory board kind of unanimously rejecting the deal, it might have also been difficult to actually get a majority in the supervisory board. Yes, they were certainly fighting an uphill battle. Let me bring in an external view on this. We're joined by Professor Isabel Schnabel, Professor of Economics at the University of Bonn. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Would you agree with Olaf's assessment that this deal was basically dead in the water? It never made any sense? Yes, I was one of the people who said from the very beginning that this merger was a very bad idea. I mean, it's clear that there could potentially be certain cost savings, but it was also clear that they would be related to the closure of branches and also to layoffs. And the resistance of the trade unions that we've seen could have been expected. And at the same time, I was arguing that such a merger would create a national champion, a bank that would have been far too big and too systemic to be allowed to fail with substantial risks for financial stability. It's pretty incredible then on both of those counts that the government seemed to have been so keen on this deal, whether they were the actual driving force or whether they were just a facilitating party. But they certainly weren't trying to block it. And yet this was an SPD finance ministry that was countenancing the idea of twenty to 30,000 job cuts as well as creating something that would be even more systemic than the institution, i.e. Deutsche Bank, that people are so worried about being too systemic. 
exactly. So I think this has to be seen in the context of the more general political debate in Germany, which has kind of rediscovered the concept of national champions, not only in banking, but also in industry. And it seems that the politicians were kind of dreaming of creating a big national banking champions. Maybe they were also influenced by their French neighbors, which have several of them. And then, of course, there's also the argument that the German industry needs a bank that can accompany the global German companies abroad. I never really understood what that is supposed to mean, because I would say that this can just as well be done by, let's say, a French or an Italian bank. Yeah, or indeed by Deutsche Bank in its current form. Of course, that's also true. But of course, we have to see that the German banking sector is in trouble. And I mean, we have to be aware of that. And I think the end of the merger talks is good news, but it doesn't solve the problems that are there. Well, that was going to be my final question for you. What does happen now? Because Deutsche's problem, i.e. concerns about its longest term stability, remain. And so does the question of what happens to Commerzbank. Not many people think it'll remain independent. And of course, for a government that seems keen on national champions, the prospect now is that Commerzbank could be acquired by an Italian like Unicredit or a Dutch entity like ING or indeed a French bank. Yes. So, I mean, it's clear that both banks have a, a profitability issue. The costs are too high. The revenues are too low. So both have to rethink their general strategy. Of course, this has already been done in the past. I would say for Deutsche Bank, a merger is not an option. I think the bank is already too big and too complex. And therefore, I don't think it should merge with another bank. For Commerzbank, the situation is a bit different and it could well be that the bank could find some strength by merging with another European competitor. I'm not so sure whether Unicredit is a good choice, given that Commerzbank has a pretty large exposure to Italian government bonds, and of course Unicredit has the same, so I'm not so sure whether that would be the perfect choice. Well, we shall see. I suspect there will be some movement one way or another in the coming months. In the meantime, Professor Schnabel, thank you so much for joining us. Olaf, just to bring you back in on the government motivation, what's your observation there? Yeah, I think we have to tell apart two things. One is the public rhetoric of the government, and the other thing is the real concern which basically triggered the attention by the government and also by regulators. And so people in background conversation who are part of the inner circle of policy making several of them independently of each other told me that the real motivation was basically a fear by policymakers that Deutsche, after the raid by Frankfurt prosecutors in late November, which sent Deutsche's share price to historic lows, also increased their funding costs significantly and also led to doubt among clients and counterparties about Deutsche's medium to long-term viability, that Deutsche could be stuck in a downward spiral of a low share price, high funding costs, falling revenues. And one person close to these policymakers told me, well, they were reminded of the situation Deutsche was in in October 2016 when there were these rumors circulating that they might have to pay a $14 billion fine to the Department of Justice. And at that point, this person told me Deutsche's share price was at 15 euros. 
Now we are in a similar situation and Deutsche's share price is at 7 euros, which limits the ability to raise additional capital if needed even more. So they came to the conclusion they definitely have to evaluate the options to overcome the situation. And the domestic merger was one of the most obvious and plausible escape routes. So the government and to some degree maybe also the regulators implored Deutsche to really properly evaluate the option and my understanding is that the outcome wasn't predetermined by the government and you can see this in the reaction of the banks who walked away eventually. One person made the interesting point if the finance minister really had wanted the deal he could have pulled on several levers to make it possible and to make it more attractive for the lenders. And the government decided against doing that, which tells you that they weren't willing to use tough pressure to really push the deal over the line or even hard pressure in terms of forcing the banks into a deal that the actual actors didn't want. Nonetheless, the situation at Deutsche is clearly unresolved, so something else will have to happen and we'll see what that might be in the near future, I'm sure. Olaf, thanks so much for joining us. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura here in the studio and all of those who called in, Stephen Morris, Oliver Ralph, Olaf Storbeck and Professor Isabel Schnabel. And also thank you for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.